On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. Well, once again, we're back in Ephesians chapter 4, where we've been looking at the practical application of all of the great doctrinal truths uh, of of the first three chapters. And Paul has talked about living out the Christian life within the church in verses 3 to 16. Beginning in verse 17, Paul's been dealing with uh, living out the Christian life in our personal lives, in our relation to fellow believers, and also to the world around us. And he's told us that, first of all, this involves no longer living the way we lived as unbelievers, because we become new creations in Christ, and therefore uh, we must be putting off You know, there must be a putting off of all the old sinful habits, patterns, and practices that belong to our former life as an unbeliever, because that old person, the person that we used to be, that that old self is dead. And he said that we, we must continually be renewing our minds, and of course that's done through the Word of God in prayer. And then because it's never enough to merely put off sin, we must also put on the new self. In other words, we must live out the life of of someone who belongs to Christ. Because our new nature includes a different mindset and lifestyle, and so we need to live accordingly. And this means there should be a distinct difference between the old person we were and the new person we we are now in Christ. And, And we're to live in a way that is consistent with that newness. But what does living out the new life in Christ look like, practically speaking? Well, that's what we began dealing with last week, because in verses 25 to 32, Paul gives six examples of what our conduct as Christians should be. And he does so by giving a series of negative commands, what not to do. And in most cases, the statement of what not to do is immediately followed by a statement of what to do. Last week, we looked at verse 25, where Paul commands believers not to lie, but to speak the truth. I mean, lying is one of the things that that belongs to the old man. It has no place in the life of the believer. And so Paul says, stop lying, and instead let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Secondly, Paul admonished us uh, to be angry. So there is a, a righteous anger, a righteous indignation that every believer should have. But righteous indignation can easily and quickly give way to to sin, becoming ungodly anger. And this is why immediately after he commands us to be angry, Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Uh, the, The time to be angry is short. So we need to deal with the matter quickly. Why? Well, Paul said in the rest of verse 27, give no opportunity to the devil. And this applies not only to anger, but to any sinful behavior that is characteristic of the old self. And the implication of this is that any unchecked sinful behavior will give the devil opportunity to come in and wreak havoc in our own lives, relationships, and the church. And so we as Christians are not to make his efforts any easier, and sinful anger uh, does that very thing. And so living out this new life in Christ means believers, number one, don't lie but speak the truth. 
Number two, don't sin when they're angry. And now in verse 28, Paul commands believers not to steal, but rather to work hard. If you'll notice now, verse 28, Paul begins by saying, let the thief no longer steal. Literally, the verse says, the one stealing should steal no more. Lying, sinful anger, and now Paul says, stealing. These things belong to the old man, the old life. And they have no place in the life of the believer. And we know this. I mean, commands against theft are common in the Bible. Stealing is forbidden in both the Old and the New Testament. The Bible has much to say about this. Let the one stealing no longer steal. And the word steal is a Greek word from which we get the word kleptomaniac. And it means to take someone else's property away stealthily, secretly, without permission. It means to take without the owner's consent. It means to secretly and craftily embezzle, to take something that is not yours, to serve your own ends and your own gratification. And both the verb steal and the word thief, which is the noun form of the same Greek word referred to stealing secretly, which means Paul probably has in mind every sort of theft you can imagine except violent robbery. And so this applies to more than just material possessions. I mean, we can steal money, yes, but we can steal time also. In fact, we can steal almost anything. And two things that need to be noted here at the very beginning. First is the fact that the commands given in verses 25 to 32 are addressed to believers in Jesus Christ. Paul's speaking to those in the church. And secondly, this is in the present tense. Let the one stealing steal no more. Paul is not writing in the past tense. Paul did not say, let the one who stole before he was converted steal no longer. No, Paul is addressing those in the church who were continuing to practice their old lifestyle of stealing, and they're doing it now as Christians. Now, some people find it shocking that uh, uh, those in the church would be stealing in the present tense and, and need the instruction to stop doing so. And some commentators try to explain this away by saying, well, you know, theft was so common in the ancient world that Christians of that day, unlike today, needed that instruction. Well, comments like that simply fail to recognize how common stealing is in our day among Christians. One commentator wrote, no one is completely free from the temptation to steal. Many children go through a phase of thinking it's fun to steal, sometimes simply for the sake of stealing. There is a certain fleshly attraction in taking that which does not belong to us and trying to get by with it. The old self had a built-in inclination to steal, and that is one of the many characteristics of the old self that the new self, which is in the likeness of God, must put away. And so Paul is speaking to Christians who have not completely given up the practice of stealing uh, they had in their old life. You see, it's important that we understand that that salvation does not uh, automatically or instantly change a man's thinking or his conduct. 
I mean, certainly God in His grace sometimes delivers sinners from specific sins at the time of their conversion. I mean, I, I've known uh, people whose lives were radically changed at conversion, some addicted to alcohol, some drugs, and they were immediately set free from their addictions when God saved them. But this is not true of all believers. And even those uh, I know who were delivered from a specific sin would never claim to have been delivered from all sin. Because sin is not eradicated from our lives at conversion. We wish that it was, but it's not. And the consistent teaching of Scripture is that coming to faith in Jesus Christ does not end our struggle with sin. Rather, that's when it really begins. You can read about it in Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7. I mean, and just think, let's think logically and biblically for a moment. If every Christian were instantly delivered from sin, then the commands of Paul here and throughout the New Testament would be meaningless and absolutely unnecessary. But there is not a once-for-all life-transforming event in the life of the Christian which instantly changes him from a sinner into a sinless saint. The Word of God does not teach perfectionism. Now, that might be news to some of you. But the Word of God does not teach perfectionism. Or that you can reach a state of complete sinlessness in this life. It's not going to happen. And certainly there are changes in our lives at the moment of conversion. But we must also expect a lifelong struggle with sin. I mean, throughout our lives, we're going, to be, we're going to continually fight against all the sinful patterns, habits, behaviors, and thinking of the old man. And, and, and the flesh is drawn to all those things. And so total victory uh, over sin is only going to come when we're transformed into the likeness of our Savior in His coming kingdom. But until then, By the grace and strength which God supplies, we must continually be putting off the old life and and putting on the new or or living out that new person that we are in Christ. I mean, Paul understands that the gospel and true Christian conversion requires a radically different way of thinking and behaving. And that is why he says here, let the one stealing steal no more. And of course, there are many different ways that we can steal. I mean, stealing encompasses a a wide variety of activities from obvious things like taking money, shoplifting, embezzling, fraud, you know, to unauthorized software usage, file-shared music, and, and pirated videos. Employees steal from employers by taking pay for time that they didn't spend doing what their employers are paying them to do. They do this by wasting time, or by doing personal work on company time, or by leaving work early, or by borrowing office supplies, or helping themselves to other items that belong to their employer, or by padding expense accounts, or by false claims of disability. In 2021, the total loss due to employee fraud was $42 billion. An article I read from February of this year One research research company concluded that 75% of employees admit to stealing from their employer at least once. Employee theft costs employers up to $50 billion annually. 
Approximately 95% of businesses are affected by employee theft. On, on, on average, 5% of an organization's revenue is lost to employee theft each year. If you're in business, I mean, as an employer, as a business person, you can steal by overcharging for your product or for the service that you render. You steal if you sell an inferior product pretending that it's better than it is or, you know, as it says in the Proverbs, by unjust weights and measures. You know, by shorting the customer. Employers steal by failing to pay a fair wage or failing to pay all that an employee has coming. In other words, not paying them for, for all their tips or all their hours, shorting their hours or shorting their overtime pay. And corrupt businessmen have found many ways of stealing, and deceit is but one of many forms of business theft. People steal by lying to landlords or employers to avoid financial responsibilities or to get something that one is not owed. People steal by lying on income taxes, by, by damaging another's reputation. The Internet has opened up a whole new avenue for thieves, namely identity theft. I read one article that said the cost of identity theft in 2020 was $56 billion, the highest number in recorded history. We steal by borrowing and not repaying. We steal when we uh, won't work so that others have to foot the bill to take care of us when we are completely capable of working and caring for ourselves. Taking some of your dad's money off the dresser or pocketing what a clerk overpays in change, it's all stealing. It's all stealing. And all of these are forms of stealing for the sake of personal gain. You know, some blatant, some subtle, but all sinful. And Christians are not immune to this. And of course, there'll be those who say, perhaps some sitting here, well, I would never do any of those things. You know, this, this command doesn't, you know, concern me well, then maybe we need to think a little harder and think a little more biblically on this word stealing. Because Scripture shows us an even more refined form of stealing, which uh, no doubt every one of us is guilty of to some degree. Stealing is withholding from God that which should be given to Him. We steal from God when we fail to worship Him as we ought. Or when we set our own interests before His legitimate interests. We steal from God when we fail to honor Him by our lives or fail to tell others of His love. We steal from God when we waste the time, talents, or resources that He has entrusted to us. Because all we have has been given to us by God and we are merely stewards of all that He has given we steal from God when we fail to faithfully and consistently give to Him of our financial resources according to how He has prospered us, uh, probably because we want to amass more wealth or perhaps some just want to hoard it or uh, only spend it on themselves. The prophet, or God said to the prophet Malachi in Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? 
You are cursed with the curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now whether you believe the tithe is for today or not, there are good and godly men on both sides of the issue. The majority of them still believe the tithe is for today. But whether you believe the tithe is for today or not, the idea of giving in the New Testament is to give to the Lord generously and to give to the Lord first. And no Christian is exempted or excused. None. I mean, why would God require less of us under grace than he, would re- than he required of the poorest Israelite? We're stewards of whatever the Lord has given to us, and we're to give back to him on a regular basis, however much or little. In the New Testament, we also see that giving is primarily for the church, and it is also primarily to and through the local church. John MacArthur said the primary place of giving is the church, to support God's people, God's leaders, and God's ministry. And he continued saying, if we do not give properly, we cannot worship properly. Jesus said, he who is faithful in in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. If therefore you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon or money, who will entrust the true riches to you? I mean, men have devised numerous ways of stealing from God. You know, failing to give back to God a portion of their resources according to how he has prospered them to support the work of the ministry. You know, giving him less than they know that they should give or giving nothing at all. Giving nothing at all. And of course, all stealing stems from greed, the love of money, as well as not trusting God to supply all your needs. And have any of us stole from God? Well, I can tell you right now that many professed Christians steal from God on a regular basis. You know, Paul, speaking to the the church at Corinth, said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But then he continued. He said, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Christians are not to steal. That's who we were. Christians are not to steal, and that includes stealing from God in terms of a lack of regular and faithful giving. The percentage of people that give on a regular basis keeps keeps dropping every year. Every year. And there, is, there is simply no end to the ways that we can steal. And whatever the ways are, uh, stealing is sin. And it has no part in the, in, in the new life of the believer. 
it is absolutely inconsistent with the new person we are in Christ. I mean, our lifestyle uh, is to be characterized by true righteousness and holiness as we've learned. And so stealing must be put off. And in its place, we must put on the behavior of the new self. And, and what is that? Well, Paul says that stealing should be replaced by sweating. In other words, stealing is to be replaced by hard work. Look at verse 28. But rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. So let him, let the thief labor, Paul says. And the word labor means to work hard, to toil, laboring to the point of weariness or exhaustion. And the tense of the word tells us that this should, should now become the regular practice of the one who was accustomed to stealing. And so he or she is to stop their stealing and instead they are to labor to the point of exhaustion, doing honest work, Paul said. In other words, they are to be engaged in meaningful labor, work that is honest, honorable, work that is productive. As one man said, it refers to God-honoring employment. A Christian should never be involved in a job, profession, work, or business that demands compromise of God's standards, that dishonors him, violates his holy commands, or misleads or harms others in any way. And so with that in mind, some jobs may be permissible, but uh, you know, they'll put you in a situation of strong temptation. And if that's the case, if, if your job is causing you to stumble, then you need to look for another job. And so the thief is no longer to steal, but to work hard to the point of exhaustion, doing honest work, work that is honorable and productive, God-honoring work, uh, which he does, Paul says, with his own hands. With his own hands. Now, while Paul's mention of working with our own hands does not in any way prohibit white-collar uh, you know, management or desk jobs, it does give dignity to blue-collar work. And it indicates that manual labor is a reputable and a godly way to make a living. I mean, after all, I mean, Jesus was a carpenter. A number of his disciples were fishermen. Paul made tents. Before David was king, he was a sheep herder. Amos, the prophet Amos, was a farmer. Manual labor is a reputable and godly way to make a living. And the phrase, his own hands, stresses the truth that the norm is for every person. The norm is for every person to be responsible to work, and not only that, to work hard. It means not being a taker, but rather being a giver. Not going through life, living off the hard work and sweat of other people, but digging in and working hard and providing for yourself and your family. And the Christian will be eager to work hard to support his family because God ordained work as something good. Adam was given work to do in the garden before the fall. I mean, and it was good. Sure, it became much harder after the fall as a result of the curse, but it's God's plan for man to work. And the Bible condemns the sluggard. You know, the book of Proverbs has a great deal to say about the sluggard, and, not, uh, and none of it is good. None of it. 
And the sluggard is, is not necessarily one who never works. He's one who works hard to avoid work. I mean, one of the jobs I had, my, my first nine or ten years in the ministry, I was bivocational, worked a second full-time job. And, and one of the jobs I had, I was just so amazed at how hard some of the people worked at not working. That's no joke. I mean, it, it was stunning. Listen, God has not saved us for lives of idleness but for lives of usefulness. And hard work is to be one of the distinctive features of a Christian's life in society. I mean, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. He wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.8, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The Christian who does not work and provide for his own, and especially for his family, has denied the faith, Paul says, and is worse than an unbeliever. But we have to understand that those strong words of Paul are certainly not directed toward those who would love to work, but who, because of a handicap or a physical disability, cannot work. But to those who are able to work, but choose not to, like the sluggard, you know, they do everything they can to avoid work so they can, they can live off others. I mean, Paul says no. You need to work, and you need to work hard. It's God's plan for everyone to work who's able to do so. And if someone's out of work, then Christians should help one another find honest work. And let me just add this. Every Christian needs to understand this, that his or her daily work uh, is a calling from God. You should understand your daily work as a calling from God doesn't matter how, how mundane your work may seem to be. We are to do the work for God and for His glory. That's who we ultimately do, that's who we ultimately do the work for. Sure, we have a, a boss, but ultimately we do our work for God and we're to do it for His glory. And so in this sense, every Christian has a holy calling designed to honor and please God and to be a gospel testimony to a watching world. So there are a number of reasons to work. Number one, because it's God's plan for everyone to work. Number two, so that we don't become a burden on others. Number three, so that we care for our family so that they don't become a burden on others. And then number four, in the last part of verse 28, Paul commands us to work. Look back at the verse. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That's not what you would expect Paul to have said. Let him work so that he can save up money. Let him work so that he can save up money and get a higher standard of living and all the things that go along with that. Now he says, let him work so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. 
So this verse makes an important statement about the Christian's motive for work. The greedy person works hard to accumulate more things for him or herself, just you know, amassing greater riches so they can own more real estate or increase their savings or their stock portfolio or, or to take more vacations, etc., 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 with little thought of others in the work of the gospel. Whereas a Christian's desire to earn more should be for the purpose of being able to give more and to help more. Beyond providing for his own and his family's basic needs, the Christian gains so that he can give. I mean, like the rest of his life, a Christian's occupation, directly or indirectly, should above all else be a means of service to God and to others. I mean, Paul says we should work to share with anyone in need. Paul tells the Romans, contribute to the needs of the saints. John Wesley put it this way, work as hard as you can, make as much as you can, then give as much as you can. There are really three options regarding work. You can steal to get, you can work to get for yourself, or you can work to get in order to give. And Paul, obviously, is commending the third option. I mean, we forget that everything, absolutely everything we have, uh, we have as a stewardship from God. And working only to provide for our own needs and desires and to amass more wealth for ourselves, that reflects a self-centered, self-engrossed life, not a Christ-like life. The godly person makes money so that he can have something to share with anyone in need. Uh, You know, because God has given so much to us, we're to take a special delight in giving to God and to those who suffer in need, particularly those in the church. As Paul wrote to the Galatians saying, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are the household of faith. Generosity and giving, particularly toward... uh, Fellow, toward God and fellow believers is to be part and parcel of the Christian lifestyle. I mean, that's just basic Christianity. Christianity 101. But yet some people who profess to be so mature in the faith and take great pride in all they know don't even seem to, to know these things because they certainly don't practice them. This is radical. I mean, only the power, the transforming power of the gospel, only the transforming power of the gospel of God's grace can turn a thief into a generous giver. Only Christianity teaches a thing like this. Do you remember the words of Paul at Miletus when he was saying goodbye to the elders at the church at Ephesus? There in Acts 20, verses 33 to 35, this is what we learn, or this is what we read. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. I mean, that is a mindset that is totally foreign to unbelievers in general. And it's certainly foreign to the thief. 
but it is to be the way of thinking and the way of life for the believer. I mean, is that your mindset? Is that your thinking? It is more blessed to give than to receive? And if you say, yes, it is, then I would encourage you to check your giving and see if what you think at this moment is actually true. And so Paul commends those, or commands those who were thieves to go beyond simply no longer stealing, because the command not to steal is, is obeyed only when we practice the opposite, which is to work hard with our own hands so that we might become generous givers. And I say that because God is concerned about the goal of the command, giving generously as those who have received generously. Because our Lord Jesus Christ has shown us what it means to give, not only generously, but sacrificially. And the key to all of this is to learn that nothing is our own. All is the Lord's. And we are owners, uh, we are not owners of anything, but rather we are stewards of of everything. Let the thief stop his stealing and instead let him work hard, not to amass more for himself, but so he can provide for his family and then above that, be able to be a generous giver. And Paul now Paul comes back to the topic of speech and deals with how we talk to one another in verse 29. Look at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. This word translated corrupt, it can refer to that which is spoiled, rotten, or putrid. And in the Gospels, it's used of diseased trees, bad fruit, and bad or rotten fish. Of course, nothing more putrid than rotten fish. And in this context, Paul is using the word figuratively to refer to speech which is harmful and speech that tears down instead of builds up. One man observed that such rotten speech like rotten fruit and rotten fish will not nourish anyone. It contaminates. It will make you sick and it smells bad and creates an unpleasant atmosphere for anyone who gets near it. And so Paul tells us to get rid of it like rotten fruit or fish. And corrupt speech can be traced to only one source, the old man. It's the old man speaking. And Paul says, don't let any corrupting speech come out of your mouth. He's saying, just stop it. I mean, you could say Paul is speaking about spiritual halitosis or, or spiritual bad breath. corrupting talk that that comes out of our mouth. It's like rotten fruit, putrid fish. When Paul speaks of corrupting talk, what, what kind of speech does he have in mind? Includes a lot of things. Lying, profanity, vulgarity, coarse jokes, abusive language, flattery, manipulative speech, unkind speech, cynical remarks, judgmental speech, 
condemning, slanderous speech, gossip, contemptuous talk, condescending speech with a patronizing attitude, sarcasm that cuts and degrades, mockery, ridicule, discontentedness, griping, murmuring, complaining, always criticizing others or criticizing the church. I mean, how quickly a local church can be divided when people's corrupt talks begin to chip away at unity with the nasty undercurrent that it creates. And such people have certainly given an opportunity for the devil. So Paul is telling us that every form of corrupt speech, every form of corrupt talk should never come out of our mouths. He wrote the Colossians saying, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. In verse 31 of Ephesians 4, Paul says, let all clamor, let all shouting and slander be put away from you. He'll come back to speech again in chapter 5 in verse 4 of chapter 5, he'll say, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. I mean, Paul just keeps coming back to our speech because corrupt speech is very much a part of the old life. We, we, we delight to gossip, tattle, malign, discredit, cast aspersions upon and destroy reputations, people, and even churches over a salad and a soda. How true it is what James said in James chapter 3, verse 6. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. I mean, what devastation can be caused by using the tongue for corrupting speech? And it's just as disgusting and contaminating as rotten fruit and fish. You see, loved ones, our speech and our conversation, I mean, they're very revealing. Because what we say and the way in which we say it really gives us an x-ray of the heart. You know, it, it reveals our character. It reveals who we really are. Jesus said in Matthew 15, verses 18 and 19, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. And a person's defiled heart is expressed in both what they do, but also in what they say. Jesus said again in Matthew 12, verses 33 through 37, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. One of the most basic principles of Scripture regarding man is that the mouth speaks what is in the heart. What a person is on the inside, his mouth will give evidence of on the outside. 
Because a person's heart is the treasury, it's the storehouse of his thoughts, ambitions, desires, loves, attitudes, and loyalties. It is the reservoir from which the mouth draws its expressions. In other words, what is in a person's heart determines the quality of speech that his mouth produces. And so there is no truer indication of an unbelieving heart than a person's speech. Because our words reveal the true state of our hearts. The tongue only speaks what the heart tells it to say. There was once a, a fable told of a woman who took poison in little drops. She didn't take a lot at one time. But day by day, she took it drop by drop, little by little, until it filled her entire body. I mean, her entire system was full of poison. And her body was so full of poison that her very breath would wither the flowers. There are so-called Christians like that, aren't there? And they open their mouths, and it's, it's a sepulcher of death. It's just full of of corrupting speech. Reminds me of what we read about in Romans chapter 3 in Paul's uh, description of unbelievers. He says their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. There's just corrupting speech, just a a stench that comes out of their mouth when they speak, spiritually speaking. Are any of us guilty of being gossipers, whisperers, slanderers, backbiters, no murmurers and, and complainers? Is our speech laced with profanity? Is it unkind? Is it cutting? Is it contemptuous? Is it judgmental, among other things? Then the Lord is speaking to us out of Ephesians. You know, no matter what some may profess, people give themselves away by their speech. Corrupt speech comes from a corrupt heart. But the speech of a believer The speech of a believer. I mean, one who's been born again. One who is a new creation in Christ is going to be different. The Christian's speech will reflect the transforming work of the gospel in his heart. And Paul said, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths because it's totally out of character with our new life in Christ. And so, by the grace and strength that God supplies, as believers, we must constantly be putting off the corrupt, sinful speech that belonged to our former life. Because it's easy for our flesh to go there. And so with the psalmist, we should be praying, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. So we have to put that off. But it's never enough for Christians to simply put off sinful behavior. Again, that's, that's nothing but moralism, and moralism will never save. And the church in this country is full of moralists.
So it's not enough to simply put off sinful behavior. We must also put on the kind of behavior that is in accordance to who we are in Christ. And so how are we to talk to one another? You know, what kind of speech are we to seek to cultivate? Well, look back at verse 29. But only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. First of all, Paul says our conversation must be good, which is the opposite of corrupt. And to good, he adds, for building up or for edifying. And building up other believers has been a main concern of Paul throughout this chapter, and it includes the words that we speak. Our speech should build up by being genuine, you know, helpful, constructive, encouraging, instructive, and and uplifting. You know, words that build confidence in others, words that remind others of their identity in Christ, words of praise, reassurance, especially after someone's failed. You know, words of comfort, words of sympathy. And at other times, our speech must be corrective. And we know from Scripture, this includes loving rebuke. It it involves admonishing, which is lovingly warning about sinful attitudes or actions and, and their consequences with an eye to correct and direct one's behavior and practice. But this too is edifying when it's done in the right spirit. You know, when it's done in humility with the spirit of, of gentleness, which is how it's supposed to be done. Paul says we're to speak words that are good for building others up and thus building up the body of Christ. As Eliphaz said of Job in Job chapter 4, verse 4, he said of Job, Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. You know, for some who profess to be Christians, it's it's not at all difficult for them to refrain from using profane, you know, vulgar language. I mean, not at all. But it's a much greater thing to know how to use words for encouragement, such as, is good for building up. I mean, how often uh, have those of us who are church leaders, I mean, almost despaired. As we have seen the damage done to, to whole congregations by one or two people who constantly find fault or always seem to be tearing down rather than building others up. But then on the other hand, what a tremendous blessing it is to see the men and women in any congregation who have learned this lesson and who use their words to be helpful, constructive, encouraging, and corrective for the benefit and the building up of those who hear. What a blessing those people are. Instead of using our mouths for corrupt, worthless speech, we should concentrate on making a positive contribution. You know, today's English version uh, translates it this way, renders it this way. Use only helpful words, the kind that build up and provide what is needed. When as Christians, we should be very concerned that our speech builds up rather than tears down and that it meets needs rather than increases them. I mean, it's almost like you want to tell some people, please don't, don't talk, don't say that. Because you're just going to create another problem that we have to go deal with. 
Our speech should meet needs rather than increase them. I mean, Paul says our speech should be such as is good for building up, and then he adds, as fits the occasion. Or if you're reading the New American Standard, uh, it says according to the need of the moment or whenever the need arises. So this implies that we're sensitive enough to understand what the person's real needs are. We don't just come with preconceived ideas and blow them out of the water with our thoughts when we we haven't really understood what the needs are. If we don't understand the person's needs, even the most well-intentioned words can often hurt more than they heal. But of course, this means we have to actually listen. We have to actually listen to discern what the other person's needs are. And you know what happens so often is that we're not really listening to the person. We're just trying to formulate our response in our minds and we don't even hear them. We have to actually listen to discern what the other person's needs are. I mean, as Proverbs 18.13 said, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is folly or it's foolishness and shame. And of course, to listen well, you've also got to ask questions to clarify what someone is saying so that you really understand what the issue is before you can speak words that are according to the need, words that fit the occasion. One commentator wrote, It is not that every word we speak is to be filled with great significance, but that what we say should always be fitting for the situation so that it constructively contributes to all. Obviously, we should never unnecessarily mention things that might harm, discourage, or disappoint someone else. Some things, though they may be absolutely true and perfectly wholesome, are better left unsaid. And that's exactly right. But for some reason, some people think they just need to say whatever it is they have on their mind. But Proverbs 29.11 says, It's a fool who gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. I mean, everyone admires the wisdom and virtue of those who speak less often, but usually say something of benefit. As Proverbs 25.11 says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Knowing the right words to say is important, but knowing the right words to say at the right time and in the right way is more important. What we say should be fitting or or appropriate for the occasion, never thoughtlessly inappropriate. As one man said, raw truth is seldom appropriate and is often destructive. And we all can identify with that. How many times have we been on the receiving end of raw truth and it wasn't helpful at all? As Paul has already said in this chapter, in verse 15, the mature Christian not only speaks the truth, but they speak the truth in love. They don't compromise the truth, but they speak the truth in love. And so before speaking, we should ask ourselves four questions. First of all, what is my motive for speaking? You know, what, what is my reason for responding to this person? And, and what, what do I hope to accomplish by opening my mouth? I said first, that's actually three, isn't it? But, but what's my motive for speaking? What do I want to accomplish by opening my mouth? Secondly, 
What impact, excuse me, what impact will my words have on this person? Will it tend to tear them down or, or build them up? And third, what impact would my words have on me if the situation were reversed? How would you like it if the person said the same things to you? And then fourthly, we should ask ourselves, what would Jesus say? And in what manner would he say it? And what's the motivating purpose of such good and beneficial speech that builds up? Look back at verse 29. That it may give grace to those who hear. That it may give grace to those who hear. I mean, grace and graciousness are to shape our speech because God has shown us abundant grace. We have been saved by grace. We are strengthened and sustained by grace. We are kept in grace. Therefore, we are to live and to speak in grace. And what Paul is saying is something like, let your speech always be with the graciousness that is appropriate to Christians, those who live in a state of grace. I mean, as new creations in Christ, even what comes out of our mouths should be a reflection of the newness of our life in Christ. In fact, what, what, what should come out of our speech is the grace of Christ Himself. But you see, grace in our speech presupposes grace in our hearts. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. There's no grace in the heart. There's going to be no grace in your speech. Grace in our speech presupposes grace in our hearts. And as God's grace flows from the heart, it flows outward in graciousness and kindness and sensitivity. I mean, all too often we alienate people with the words we speak. But Paul has a recipe for changing that. We should add grace to our speech. I mean, because adding grace to our speech, that rules out harshness, criticism, gossip, and all unkind, ungracious talk. Our speech must always be with graciousness, you know, shaped by God's own grace in our lives. And of course, there is no better example of this graciousness than the Lord Jesus. In Luke 4.22, we read, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And Jesus was always gracious with those who came to him humbly and sincerely. He was always gracious with sinners, but he had the harshest words uh, for those who were religious hypocrites, the self-righteous. I mean, graciousness always characterized Jesus, and it should characterize all who were in Christ as well. You know, when God took on human flesh in the person of Jesus, John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth. And as, and as those who have put on the new man created in true righteousness and holiness, we should make sure that our words and actions are full of grace and truth. And really, we can sum up uh, uh, 
what Paul is teaching by pointing out that what he's really doing here is calling us to behave like our Lord himself. And how did he behave? Well, we have a description of him written by the prophet Isaiah in one of his great messianic passages. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4, the Messiah is speaking and he says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. You know, loved ones, there are, there are weary people all around us. People who are weary of sin, people who are weary in sin, people who are weary of life. And there are Christians among us who are, who are carrying burdens, some of them unbelievable. There are those suffering illness and sickness, disappointment, the betrayal of friends, you know, some hope suddenly gone. There are men and women all around us who are weary. And as we meet them and speak to them, we need to forget ourselves. Because this isn't about us. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about self. We're to die to self. We need to forget about ourselves and and pray that like Jesus, we might be enabled to speak a word in season to some weary brother or sister in Christ. And put their interests above our own, which is another thing we're called to do. I mean, Jesus came from heaven to do that. And it is written of him, and he verified it in his life, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. And that's the way for us also. You know, as we travel through... uh, You know, this pilgrimage of life, we're to seek to build our brothers and sisters up with the word that will remind them that if they are in Christ, then they are precious to him. And he cares for them. And he will never leave them or forsake them. And no matter what they're going through, his grace is sufficient. And they're there to come alongside, if nothing else, to put their arm around them to pray for them and with them if they have a need, then to give up their own resources to help them. We need to encourage the weary, comfort the brokenhearted, uplift the downcast, and and help one another. We're not in this alone. We're in this together. And we're to help one another, to love one another, to serve one another. And in our speech, we're to let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. I mean, this is so important. It's so important. Because our graciousness reflects the grace of Christ who uses our graciousness to build up and edify believers and thus the church and to draw unbelievers to his grace. I mean, do you think in, in uh, your place of business or in, in the public, you know, as you deal with unbelievers and, and you have nothing but corrupt speech coming out of your mouth, do you think that that's going to draw them to Christ? Well, they just deserve a piece of my mind. No, they don't. They deserve to see the graciousness of Christ in you.
Is your speech gracious? You know, are you one of those godly people in the church who uses your words for for building others up? Is your speech always with grace, as Paul told the Colossians, seasoned, as it were, with salt? I mean, do people see a difference in the, in the way you talk? Are you known for gracious speech or for corrupt speech? You know, instead of using our mouths for corrupt, worthless speech, as new creations in Christ, we use our mouths for gracious, helpful words the kind that that build up and are appropriate for the situation so that our words become a vehicle and a demonstration of the grace of God. An unknown poet wrote this, A careless word may kindle strife. A cruel word may wreck a life. A bitter word may hate instill. A brutal word may smite and kill. A gracious word may smooth the way. A joyous word may light the day. A timely word may lessen stress. A loving word may heal and bless. So rather than using words to tear down others as a new creation in Christ, we're to use our words to build others up. And so what does living out this new life in Christ look like, practically speaking? Well, it means not lying, but speaking the truth because we're one in Christ, members of the same body. Number two, it means not sinning when we're angry. You know, dealing with anger quickly so that we don't give the devil opportunity to cause trouble. Number three, it involves not stealing, but rather working hard, not simply to provide for ourselves, but so that we have something to share with those in need. And number four, it means not speaking what is corrupt and harmful, but what is good and builds up that it may give grace to those who hear. Let me ask you something. Does that that describe your life? your walk with the Lord. And of course, none of us does this perfectly, right? I mean, that's the battle. But overall, does that describe your life, your walk with the Lord? Is that your desire? Is that the direction of your life? You know, may God, by His indwelling Spirit, work all these things in our lives, beginning with me. May He work these things in our lives, that our lives might be a testimony of His glorious grace. And a powerful motivation for obeying these commands is that not to do so grieves the Holy Spirit of God. So we don't do these things, we grieve the Holy Spirit of God. But that's for our next study, Lord willing. Let's stand and pray. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. 
or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org, calvarybiblepc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. It's your love that makes me see. It's your word that comforts me by your blood. We have been saved.